Welcome ZooAssemblyers! My name is Zuka Zalishvili and I'm the founder of ZooAssembly. ZooAssembly is an online podcast for the highest yield basic science and clinical knowledge tested on USMLE Step 1 and USMLE Step 2 CK. The information discussed in this podcast is intended only for educational purposes. It's not intended to prevent, diagnose, or to treat the medical conditions in real clinical practice, nor is it intended to reflect the policy and the guidelines of various health institutions. Simply put, we serve you to butcher your step exams. Please subscribe to our podcast, Facebook, Instagram pages, and the YouTube channels down below in the description of this episode so that we keep you tuned for the news at ZooSMLE. Now, let's start rolling. Today, we are continuing the Step 1 series, specifically respiratory system. And in today's episode, we will discuss the respiratory anatomy and histology. So let's start. At first, we need to describe the two main parts of the respiratory system. The respiratory system is divided into the conducting zone and the respiratory zone. Conducting zone is called so because its function is to conduct the air to the respiratory zone. In other words, conducting zone does not participate in gas exchange. So oxygen is not going into the blood and carbon dioxide is not going from the blood into the airways in the conducting zone. This process occurs in the respiratory zone. And the respiratory zone is named so because this is where the actual respiration takes place. This is where the oxygen goes into blood from the alveoli and the carbon dioxide goes uh, from the blood into the alveoli, right? Um, yeah. So what are the parts of conducting zone? Conducting zone is anything starting from the nose and mouth all the way through the terminal bronchioles. So to be more specific, the conducting zone involves nose, mouth, nasopharynx, oropharynx, larynx, trachea, bronchi, bronchioles, and terminal bronchioles. The conducting zone is further subdivided into the large airways and the small airways. And this has the clinical significance that we'll talk about in a little bit. But first, let's just list the part the parts of the conducting zone which are considered to be the large airways and the parts which are considered the small airways. Large airways are anything from the nose and the mouth all the way through the tertiary or segmental bronchi. Let me remind you that the bronchi are classified into three different types. We have primary or main stem bronchi and there are only two of these. So we have right mainstem bronchus and the left mainstem bronchus. Then these primary or mainstem bronchi subdivide into the secondary or the lower bronchi. And on the right side, we have three lower bronchi. And on the left side, we only have two lower bronchi. And we will find out the reason for this 
uh, anatomical fact in today's episode. And finally, the secondary bronchi further subdivide into tertiary or segmental bronchi. Because if you recall from your respiratory anatomy, the lung is divided into the lobes and then the segments, and each segment has its own separate blood supply, venous drainage, and the lymphatic drainage. And we will definitely reiterate this point later in today's episode. But the main point here was that the large airways of the conducting zone are anything from the nose and mouth all the way through the tertiary or segmental bronchi. In contrast, the bronchioles and the terminal bronchioles are considered to be the small airways. Now, as I told you, there is a clinical significance about this particular way of classifying the conducting zone components. And let me tell you what it is. Have you heard the terms strider and wheezing? I hope you have. But let me still define them for you. Strider is the respiratory sound, which is created by the obstruction or narrowing of the large airways, particularly the trachea or the larynx. Uh, so let's just mention the infectious condition, which is called croup, also acute laryngotracheobronchitis. And we know that in croup, we have the proximal tracheal stenosis. And patients who have croup commonly have the strider. Or let's take Another infectious condition called uh, the uh, acute epiglottitis. We know that it's caused by Haemophilus influenza, mostly type B, and then acute epiglottitis is a supraglottic inflammation and supraglottic stenosis, but still it is the part of the large airways of the conducting zone, so it will also cause the strider. But now let's move on to the diseases of the small airways, meaning the diseases affecting the bronchioles and the terminal bronchioles. The term wheezing is the pulmonary sound created by obstruction or narrowing of the small airways or bronchioles and terminal bronchioles. And the classic disease which causes narrowing of this part of the conducting zone is asthma. We commonly say that patients with asthma, especially during their attacks, have wheezing. And this wheezing is caused exactly by the narrowing and the spasm of the bronchioles and the terminal bronchioles as well. Now, let's explain what the functions of the conducting zone are. There are three functions accommodated by the conducting zone of the respiratory system. First of all, it warms the air. Secondly, it also humidifies the air by the water droplets. And this humidification process is very important because if the air that we inhale was completely dry, then it would damage the vessels in the wall of the respiratory tree, and that could potentially cause, for example, epistaxis, which is nosebleed, 
and um, some other problems related to the dryness of the respiratory mucosa, but that usually does not happen because, as we already said, the conducting zone humidifies the air. And at the same time, probably the most important function of the conducting zone is filtering the air from particulate matter and bacteria and viruses and any potentially any type of microbes. And the filtering of the air happens by something called mucociliary escalator. In mucociliary escalator, we mean two things. And the name um, basically discloses both of these things. Mucociliary escalator. It means that there is a layer of mucus on top of the respiratory mucosa, and there are cilia emerging from the respiratory epithelial cells, and the cilia beat towards the larynx and towards the laryngopharynx so that the mucus is moving uh, from the lower parts of the airways towards the upper parts of the airways. And then we swallow that mucus and the gastric acid basically neutralizes all of those either microbes or uh, particulate matter. We are stressing this point because there are two extremely, extremely high yield diseases affecting the mucociliary escalator. Let me describe the case and you should tell me what disease am I, I'm, I'm talking about. Let's say that we have a 15 year old guy who is known to have recurrent sinusitis and recurrent pneumonia. However, he generally feels well between the episodes of the respiratory infections. He gains weight normally and uh, on, also on the physical exam, he's generally well appearing. However, uh, his chest x-ray, or let's say his physical exam, reveals the rightward displacement of the point of maximum impulse. So, do you already know what disease I'm talking about? I hope you do, but still let me tell you this. This is the disease called primary ciliary dyskinesia, sometimes called Cartagener's syndrome. In Cartagener's syndrome, we have the autosomal recessive defect in the dynein gene, and this dynein is the integral part of the cilia. And we have basically two types of dynein. Uh, so there is a ciliary dynein or axonemal dynein, and then there's cytosolic one, which is mostly involved in the transport of the uh, different organelles and the vesicles, but that's a different story, which is beyond our discussion here. The problem in Cartagener syndrome is in the axonemal dynein. And dynein is the protein which makes the components of the cilia slide along each other and therefore it makes the cilia bend. Consequently, you can imagine that if we don't have dynein or if the dynein arm is, is uh, dysfunctional in any possible way, then the cilia cannot beat 
the cilia cannot bend towards the larynx and towards the laryngopharynx. So it's almost impossible to clear all of that mucus, particulate matter, and the microbes. And finally, those microbes start to overgrow in the lungs and also in the upper airways, and they cause these recurrent infections. However, patients with Cartagener syndrome do not have gastrointestinal problems. They have the normal absorption and they have the normal vitamin levels in their blood, so they do not experience failure to thrive. And I am emphasizing the absence of failure to thrive in Cartagener syndrome because we need to compare the syndrome to another very, very common genetic disease, which also affects the mucociliary escalator. But in this case, it affects not the cilia themselves, but the mucus. Do you have an idea about what disease I'm talking? I hope you do. This is gen generally the most common uh, lethal genetic syndrome in Caucasians. And I'm talking about the cystic fibrosis. Let's recall that cystic fibrosis is also an autosomal recessive disorder, just like the Cartagener syndrome. However, the genetic mutation in cystic fibrosis happens in the gene called CFTR gene. And CFTR is an abbreviation which stands for cystic fibrosis transmembrane uh, regulator conductance. So this is a chloride channel which participates in the chloride movement from the cell to the extracellular environment or from the extracellular environment to the intracellular environment. It depends on the location of this CFTR channel. In the respiratory system and also in the GI tract, the CFTR channel is necessary for chloride secretion. In other words, in respiratory and the GI tract, CFTR channel drives the chloride out of the cell. Now let's imagine what happens if this channel is dysfunctional or it is misfolded in the rough endoplasmic reticulum so it does not make its way to the plasma membrane. In that case, chloride is trapped inside the cell. If the chloride is trapped inside the cell, well then cell becomes net negative, meaning the net charge inside the cell is negative, but this is a disequilibrium, this is disbalance for the body. And we know the concept of electroneutrality, right? This is when the body tries to maintain the equal amount of positive and negative charges in uh, its uh, vicinity. So what happens is that since we have excessive chloride inside the cell, then the cells try to reabsorb extra sodium via the epithelial sodium channels or the ENAC channels. Finally, we have sodium chloride inside the cell and we also know from the physiology that the water follows the sodium. So once sodium is being reabsorbed in excessive amounts in the respiratory and the GI system, then the water is also reabsorbed. Now, what do you think will happen to the mucus of the respiratory and the GI system? I hope you're telling me that the mucus will get extremely, extremely thickened. And this is the problem in cystic fibrosis. 
the respiratory tree and the GI system become obstructed and clogged up by this extremely thickened mucus. So the patients with cystic fibrosis have respiratory, recurrent respiratory infections. In cystic fibrosis patients at the age of less than 20, the most common bacterial infection is Staph aureus pneumonia. And in patients more than 20, it's basically Pseudomonas aeruginosa. However, infections called by, caused by Burkholderia sapaceae and Haemophilus influenza are also very common. And strep pneumonia is definitely common too, because that's, after all, the most common cause of community-acquired pneumonia. And as for the GI tract, we might have the pancreatic insufficiency because the pancreatic ducts are clogged up with this thick mucus. So the cystic fibrosis patients will have malabsorption. They will have the deficiency of mostly uh, fat-soluble vitamins. And we might see the manifestation manifestations of the deficiencies of those fat-soluble vitamins. They will also have steatorrhea because almost all of the fat that they consume in their uh, uh, food stays in their GI tract and then it's excreted in the stools. And the cystic fibrosis patients will also have failure to thrive. Let's compare cystic fibrosis and cotagenous syndrome in terms of their symptoms. Both of them will have recurrent sinopulmonary infections, meaning infections of the sinuses and the lungs. However, it is the cystic fibrosis which will also have gastrointestinal problems, failure to thrive, and steatorrhea, while Cartagener syndrome will have none of these findings, which we talked about for the cystic fibrosis. And for the completeness sake, let's also mention the function of the CFTR channel in the exocrine glands, especially the sweat glands, right? In the sweat glands, the CFTR channel reabsorbs the chloride. Now let's follow the logic there. If the CFTR channel is misfolded and retained in the RER, so if it does not make its way to the plasma membrane, then it means that the sweat gland epithelial cells cannot reabsorb the chloride from the sweat. Now it means that the sweat itself has excessive chloride concentration. And we already explained the concept of electron neutrality. So the body always tries to maintain the uh, net neutral charge or the equal amount of positive and negative charges in all the fluids and all the tissues. So since we have high chloride concentration inside the sweat, then sodium will be secreted from the cells of the sweat gland into the sweat so that it can balance out the negative charge of the chloride. Now we already said that water follows the sodium, which means that now we will have the sweat which will have a very very high content of sodium chloride and actually measuring the sweat chloride concentration is the first test to screen for the uh, cystic fibrosis and to just start the diagnostic workup. And the specific cutoff value that we should know is 60. So if sweat chloride concentration is more than 60, it highly, highly suggests cystic fibrosis. These two diseases 
comprise the clinical significance of mucociliary escalator of the conducting zone. Now let's discuss the respiratory zone and then we will talk about the respiratory histology. The respiratory zone, as we already said once during our today's episode, is the zone which participates in the gas exchange, meaning oxygen goes from the alveoli into the blood while carbon dioxide goes from the blood into the alveoli. And the respiratory zone is composed of three different parts, which is respiratory bronchioles, alveolar ducts, and then alveoli. Respiratory bronchioles are those very, very thin and narrow bronchioles, which are the continuation of the terminal bronchioles. If you remember, the terminal bronchioles were the last part of the conducting zone. So what I'm trying to say here is that the conducting zone and the respiratory zone are continuous with each other. And this classification of the respiratory tree into conducting and the respiratory zone is simply the way to just classify the function of the different parts of the respiratory tree. Respiratory bronchioles give rise to even smaller and narrower ducts, which are called the alveolar ducts. And finally, the alveolar ducts give rise to, um, logically, alveoli. And as we already said, the main function of the respiratory zone is gas exchange. Now we will move on to describing the respiratory histology and let's start from describing the histology of conducting zone. At first, uh, we should know that the conducting zone, at least basically the nose, the nasopharynx, larynx, trachea and the bronchi are mostly covered with the pseudostratified columnar ciliated epithelium. Now let's break down this name, right? Because it's a little bit mouthful. Well, pseudostratified means that there are many different sized cells in the respiratory epithelium, but all of them touch the basement membrane, which is immediately under the epithelium. Their nuclei seem to be at the different level when we look at the respiratory epithelial histology under the light microscope. However, they all touch the basement membrane. We also said that it's pseudostratified columnar epithelium, and columnar simply means that the most of these respiratory epithelial cells in the upper airways are long, and they're called columnar. And ciliated means that most of them have the cilia, right? But we should also discuss two very, very important cells in this pseudostratified columnar ciliated epithelium. We have the goblet cells and the basal cells. Do you know the normal function of the goblet cells? I hope that you do, but if you don't, not a problem. We'll explain it right now. The goblet cells are the mucus secreting cells of the respiratory tree and not only respiratory tree actually GI system and the GI epithelium also has the goblet cells which will secrete the mucus so goblet cells produce the glycoprotein called the mucin 
and when mucin is surrounded by the water molecules, then this is already called the mucus. This is this stringy and slimy uh, secretions which line the respiratory epithelium. And on the other hand, the basal cells are located near the basement membrane of the respiratory epithelium. This is why they're called basal cells. And the basal cells are mostly functioning as the stem cells for the respiratory epithelium. In other words, they can differentiate either into the ciliated cells or the goblet cells if there is damage to the respiratory epithelium. And basal cells also um, include some cells which are called neuroendocrine cells, and they are also called Kulchitsky cells. I am mentioning this name because we will mention the specific type of lung cancer in the pathology section, which is called small cell lung carcinoma. And the small cell lung carcinoma is actually the cancer of these small blue neuroendocrine cells called Kulchitsky cells. And I think it's better that we mention this today, and we will solidify this knowledge when we talk about the pulmonary pathology, specifically the lung cancer. Under the basement membrane, we definitely have the submucosa, which is mostly connective tissue with the blood vessels, venous drainage, and lymphatic drainage. And then under submucosa, we have the muscularis layer, which is the muscle around the respiratory tree. This is a smooth muscle, and it regulates the diameter of the conducting zone airways. What I mean here is that the smooth muscle extends all the way through the terminal bronchioles. So we can regulate the diameter of the bronchi and the bronchioles and the terminal bronchioles so they can constrict or they can dilate. And this function is uh, dysregulated in case of asthma, for example, in which case we have periodic constriction of the bronchi and bronchioles and terminal bronchioles, and this, is, this causes wheezing, as we already discussed. The trachea and the bronchi also have the cartilage. And cartilage is these uh, incomplete circles. At least the trachea has the incompletely surrounded cartilage rings but the bronchi have complete rings of the cartilage and the cartilage's main function is to maintain the shape of the airways including trachea and the bronchi. Now there is one clinical correlation and significance here. Have you heard about the condition called bronchiectasis? Let's mention it briefly and we will definitely discuss it in great detail in the pulmonary pathology section. Bronchiectasis literally means permanent bronchial dilation. It's bronchiectasia. Ectasia means dilation. And bronchiectasis is mostly caused by recurrent pulmonary infections and overgrowth of bacteria, which causes this recurrent neutrophilic damage to the respiratory epithelium and the cartilage. And since the cartilage itself is also damaged to some degree in the bronchiectasis, the bronchi lose their normal shape 
they become extremely dilated and we can see this on the chest CT for example as the signet ring sign and the tram track sign which indicates the thickened bronchial walls but more on that in the pulmonary pathology section let's get back to the histology now bronchioles no longer have pseudo stratified epithelium in the bronchioles we already have simple columnar ciliated epithelium now the meaning of this simple epithelium is that it contains only one layer of cells and the nuclei of these cells are roughly at the same level but please uh, take a notice at the fact that bronchioles still contain the cilia and the cilia as we mentioned clears all of the mucus and debris uh, that goes down in the respiratory tree and bronchioles and terminal bronchioles also have the smooth smooth muscle but they do not have cartilage and this is normal in the terminal bronchioles the epithelium is transformed from simple columnar ciliated epithelium into simple cuboidal ciliated epithelium which means that the cells of the terminal bronchioles become a little bit shorter but wider and they still have cilia and there is one very very important type of cell which is specific for the bronchioles meaning it is present in bronchioles terminal bronchioles and respiratory bronchioles so any part of the respiratory tree ending in the word bronchioles contains do you remember what type of cell we discussed this cell in the respiratory embryology video um, episode this is the club cell or the clara cell and as we mentioned in the respiratory embryology episode the club cell produces the part of surfactant it also acts as reserve cells and also neutralizes some of the toxic particulate matter that goes down into the respiratory tree finally when we go down into the respiratory zone then we have simple cuboidal and simple squamous epithelium in the respiratory bronchioles basically the respiratory bronchioles are the place places where the simple cuboidal epithelium is going into simple squamous epithelium but there is one common feature for these two types of epithelia there are no longer the cilia in the respiratory bronchioles so cilia terminate at the terminal bronchioles and the reason for this is that in the respiratory zone we don't need the cilia that much because there is a cell which clears all of those debris that reaches the respiratory zone can you tell me which type of cell I'm talking about here this is an alveolar macrophage yes alveolar macrophage is a phagocyte just like the macrophage in any other organ system and if the particulate matter is so small 
that it can reach all the way down to the respiratory zone, which is respiratory bronchioles and alveolar ducts and alveoli, then alveolar macrophage can uh, phagocytose these particles. And sometimes it results in significant inflammation and dysregulated inflammation too. The clinical significance of this is, for example, the syndromes of pneumoconiosis. And I promise that we'll discuss them in depth in the respiratory pathology section. But what I'm trying to say here is that when those particles, for example, asbestos or silica, go down to the respiratory tree, respiratory zone, sorry, and are phagocytosed by the macrophages, then the macrophages release those pro-inflammatory cytokines, which finally result in the interstitial fibrosis and the restrictive lung disease. Okay, let's get back to the basic histology. Alveoli, as we discussed in the respiratory embryology episode, are mostly lined by the type 1 pneumocytes, and at some places we have clustered cuboidal type 2 pneumocytes. Do you remember the function of type 1 pneumocytes? I hope you're telling me that type 1 pneumocytes are those thin epithelial cells comprising approximately 97% of the alveolar surface area and participating in the gas exchange. Because in order for the gas exchange to happen, exchange to happen, we need the exchange barrier, barrier to be as thin as possible. And this is a very important physiologic concept too, and we will touch on that in the physiology episode as well. In contrast, the type 2 pneumocytes are necessary to produce what? Let me remind you if you don't remember that. This is surfactant. And surfactant, if you recall from our respiratory embryology episode, is necessary to decrease the surface tension and the collapsing pressure in the alveoli and therefore to keep the alveoli open. We should also mention that the least airway resistance across the whole respiratory tree is present in the terminal bronchioles. Now, do you know the reason why this is the case? This is true because we have many, many terminal bronchioles in parallel to each other. And if you remember from the physiology, the resistance goes down when we have many tubes connected to each other in parallel. However, the highest resistance in the respiratory tree is in the medium-sized bronchi because those medium-sized bronchi are connected to each other in series. And once again, if we recall from the physiology, the resistance increases if we connect the tubes or the structures in series because in that case, the resistances of each resistor add up to each other. And finally, we will receive the uh, great value for the resistance. Okay, now that we have discussed the general anatomy and histology of the whole respiratory tree, let's focus on the lungs and pulmonary arteries. And 
their high yield anatomic correlations. We mentioned this fact earlier during today's episode, but let's just spread this topic a little bit. Right lung has three lobes. We have right upper lobe called RUL, right middle lobe, which is RML, and right lower lobe, which is RLL. And therefore, there are two fissures in the right lung because each fissure separates two neighboring lobes of the lung. We have a horizontal fissure on the right side, which separates the right upper and the middle lobes from each other. And then we have oblique fissure on the right side as well, which separates the right middle and the lower lobes from each other. Now let's move on to the left lung. Left lung has only two lobes. It has two lobes, so we have the left upper lobe, or LUL, and then we have the left lower lobe, or LLL. And there is a small part of the left upper lobe, which is called lingula, and this is a small protrusion near the cardiac apex, which is almost like a homologue for the right middle lobe. Since we have only two lobes in the left lung, how many fissures do you think we'll have in the left lung? I really, really hope that you're telling me that we'll have only one fissure, because as we already said, one fissure separates two neighboring lobes in the lungs, and in the left lung, we have only two lobes. And the left-sided fissure is an oblique fissure. Let's summarize the fissures present in the lung. lungs. We have the horizontal fissure in the right lung, and the horizontal fissure is present only in the right lung, not in the left lung. However, we have oblique fissures in both right and the left lungs. So we have right oblique fissure and the left oblique fissure. Now, the lower lobes, both right and left lower lobes, are represented mostly on the posterior side of the thorax. Therefore, if during the pulmonary auscultation, we need to uh, auscultate the lower lobes, we actually need to auscultate the patient's backside in order to find out if there is uh, something wrong there. Before we move on to the anatomy of the pulmonary arteries and their relationship to the main stem bronchi, let me talk about the aspiration anatomy. In aspiration anatomy, I mean the lung lobe, which will receive the aspirated object while the patient is in different positions during the aspiration. Generally, there is one rule, rule of thumb, which you can use while you're solving the question about the aspiration. The right main stem bronchus is wider, it's less acutely deviated or more vertical, and it is shorter than the left main stem bronchus. Now here comes the question. Which main stem bronchi, in your opinion, will most likely receive the aspirated object? And I think you are telling me that it will be the right main stem bronchus. And the reason for this was 
basically all of those facts that we talked about um, it basically short time ago, right? So right mainstem bronchus is wider, more vertical, and also it is much shorter than the left mainstem bronchus. So it's much easier for the aspirated object to go into the right mainstem bronchus. But okay, it goes into the right primary bronchus, but then in which lobe of the right lung does the aspirated object get lodged? Well, here it depends on the position of the patient while she or he aspirates the object. If the patient is upright while he or she aspirates something, then this aspirated object will go into the posterobasal segment of the right lower lobe. Please remember these segments and the lobes because they are extremely important. And here we also have some general rules of thumb. First of all, since the right lower lobe is the lowest lobe in the right lung, it will most likely receive that aspirated object. And at the same time, the idea is that the aspirated object always goes down into the gravity-dependent area, meaning the area which is affected the most by the gravity. And in an upright person, this lobe is right lower lobe, specifically postural basal segment. And now what happens if the patient is supine while she or he aspirates something, for example, the peanut? In that case, the aspirated object or the food particle will go in the right lower lobe, um, just like in case of the upright patient. But in this case, it will go into the epical segment or the superior segment of the right lower lobe because while we are in supine position, the most gravity dependent area is actually the epical or superior segment of the right lower lobe. And finally, if the patient is lying on his or her right side while he or she aspirates something, then this aspirated material will go into the right upper lobe because in this position, the most gravity-dependent area is right upper lobe. Okay, now let's discuss the relationship, the anatomical relationship of the pulmonary arteries to the main stem bronchi. And there is one very famous mnemonic here from the first aid, and this mnemonic is RALS. RALS is basically telling us what is the location of the main stem bronchi in relation, sorry, uh, what, what's the relationship of the pulmonary arteries to the main stem bronchi. And the first two letters in the mnemonic RALS is RA. It means that the right pulmonary artery is anterior to the right main stem bronchus. And the last two letters of this mnemonic is LS, which means that the left pulmonary artery is superior to the left main stem bronchus. And I really, really would like you to remember this association, but the thing is that we should always remember which comes first in this mnemonic. It's the pulmonary artery 
first and then its relationship to the mainstem bronchi. Now, as for the location of carina, carina is the part where trachea divides into the mainstem bronchi, and it is located approximately at the level of sternal angle of Lewis uh, of the sternum. Or we can say that it's located at the level of the T4 uh, vertebra. And carina is located posterior to the ascending aorta. So at first we have aorta and then there is carina. And carina is anteromedial to the descending aorta. And this is the case because the aorta goes back and slightly left after it just arches um, around the around the pulmonary arteries. And this is why carina is located anteromedial to the descending aorta, or we can say that descending aorta is located posterolateral to the carina. Today, we will also talk about the diaphragm and uh, all of those hiata which go through the diaphragm and their contents. As we know, the diaphragm is the main respiratory muscle of uh, the organism. So when we breathe normally without any additional effort, it's the diaphragm which contracts and descends during inhalation and it basically uh, relaxes and ascends during the exhalation. In other words, it is the inhalation which is an active process requiring the diaphragm to contract and the exhalation is a passive process where diaphragm simply relaxes and it pushes on the lungs so that the lungs exhale all of those air. Not all of those, but still uh, most of it. And the right hemidiaphragm, i.e. the right half of the diaphragm or diaphragmatic dome is normally a little bit higher than the left hemidiaphragm. So if you see on the chest x-ray that the patient's right diaphragmatic dome is located slightly at a higher level than the left diaphragmatic lobe, please don't consider this an abnormal finding. This is totally normal and this is uh, what usually happens. Now, as we already said, there are three hiata in the diaphragm and we should know each hiatus and we should know at which vertebral level this hiatus is. So we have the hiatus at the level of T8 vertebra and in this hiatus there are two structures going from the thorax into the retroperitoneum. This is inferior vena cava and right phrenic nerve. Therefore, the diaphragmatic hiatus at the T8 vertebral level is also called caval hiatus. Now, two vertebral levels down, meaning at the T10 vertebral level, we have esophageal hiatus. And in esophageal hiatus, logically, we have the esophagus going through the diaphragm, but in addition to esophagus, we also have the vagal trunks. Vagal trunks are 
the parts of the vagus nerve, we have anterior and posterior vagal trunks, and they are the continuation of the left and right uh, vagus nerves. So in that case, what happens is that the left vagus nerve will form the anterior vagal trunk, and the right vagus nerve will form the posterior vagal trunk, and this particular phenomenon is caused by rightward rotation of the foregut by 90 degrees during the formation of the GI system. Well, that's a topic for the different episode, and we will definitely have the episode about the GI embryology. But let's get back to the diaphragm. We already talked about two hiata here. We have caval hiatus and esophageal hiatus, and now let's mention the third and last normal hiatus in diaphragm, which is aortic hiatus. It is located at the T12 vertebral level. And additionally, it contains not only aorta, but also two additional components. It contains the azygos vein, and the azygos vein drains the right posterior thorax, and it also contains the thoracic duct, also called left lymphatic trunk. And the left lymphatic trunk drains almost all of the lymph from the body except for the upper half of the body above the right hemidiaphragm. So the whole right thorax, the right upper extremity, and the right half of the face is drained by the right lymphatic trunk not the thoracic duct, which goes through the aortic hiatus. Okay, so aortic hiatus contains aorta, thoracic duct, and azygos vein. I highly recommend that you know the vertebral levels of these different hiata and also the contents of them, because I can clearly see that you might encounter the questions about the, this topic, either in the question banks or on the actual exam. Diaphragm is innervated by the nerve called phrenic nerve, and phrenos in, in uh, Greek means diaphragm, so phrenic nerve is diaphragmatic nerve, and it is originated from the spinal cord segments C3, C4, and C5. Let me also tell you that phrenic nerve innervates not only diaphragm, but also parietal uh, pericardium. And finally, there is a very, very high yield clinical correlation about the phrenic nerve and referred pain. Generally, what is the referred pain? Referred pain is when the patient has a pain impulse originating from the visceral organ or the internal organ, but the body uh, just uh, in, um, interprets this pain as coming from the somatic nervous system or just some part of the patient's skin or the body. For example, if we have irritation of the phrenic nerve due to any cause, and this might be due to uh, subphrenic abscess, for example, after abdominal surgeries, it might be due to subphrenic air, which is caused by perforation of the GI viscera, 
and it might also be due to intraperitoneal bleeding. So whatever it is, when we have the pressure on the diaphragm from the downside of the diaphragm and this pressure irritates the phrenic nerve, then we might perceive the pain from the appropriate dermatomes. Do you remember which spinal nerves comprise the phrenic nerve? I hope you do. It's C3, 4, and 5. And there's also this very, very fun, very good and useful first aid mnemonic, which says C3, 4, 5 keeps your diaphragm alive. So if we have diaphragmatic irritation, uh, once again, from many causes, also cystitis or biliary colic, then we might perceive the pain in C3, 4, or 5 dermatomes, which is mostly on the shoulder ridge and the trapezius ridge. And this is why, for example, the patient with status might be feeling the pain not only in the right upper quadrant, but also in the right shoulder. And there is the analogous sign on the left side, which has a specific name. It's called Kerr sign. So uh, Kerr is spelled like K-E-H-N-R. And Kerr sign is when the splenic pathology irritates the left-sided phrenic nerve, causing the left-sided shoulder pain. Let's say the patient has splenic rupture due to some kind of trauma. Um, suppose motor vehicle accident, or let's say the patient had infectious mononucleosis with resultant hepatosplenomegaly, and this patient did not comply with the doctor's advice to uh, refrain from the contact sports, and this patient induced the splenic rupture while playing some kind of contact sport. In that case, the patient might experience the left-sided shoulder pain together with the findings of the splenic rupture, and this will be due to the irritation of the left-sided phrenic nerve. We have come to an end of our today's episode about the respiratory anatomy and histology, and let's summarize everything that we have discussed today. Today we have talked about the general structure and histology of um, the respiratory tree. We should know two different zones of the respiratory system, which is conducting in the respiratory zone, and we should also remember their respective functions. We also reviewed the lung anatomy. We should remember the number of the lobes number of the main stem bronchi in each lungs and it will be very very good if you also remember the relationship of the pulmonary arteries to the main stem bronchi. Another extremely high yield topic that we have touched on today is the aspirational anatomy. In other words we should know which part of the lungs will receive the aspirated material while the patient aspirates this object in different body positions. And finally, we talked about diaphragm and the diaphragmatic hiata. There are a total of three 
high yield diaphragmatic hiatus, we should know their vertebral levels and we should know their contents. So you can leave the voice message on this episode to let us know how we can improve our podcast for you. So thank you for your kind intentions, Osemul Ears, and see you on the next episode.